0: Welcome. Thanks for joining us today for our online experience here at Linden Road. So glad you have found us. If this is your first time, we want to say a special welcome to you, and we'd like to invite you to click on the digital connection card up here in the corner and just let us know who you are, or maybe leave a comment here in the chat, uh, email address, maybe something we can pray for. But we're just grateful that you found time, and we certainly hope it's not your last time. And if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you also. And we invite you to use the same connection card or leaving a comment here in the chat. Just something we need to know here in the building. But are grateful, too, for your faithfulness in so many things. And so as we have celebrated the 4th of July, sort of mixed up our week a little bit, right, because of being on Tuesday, but I hope your 4th of July was safe and you were able to enjoy the fireworks and time with family, our friends at He Gets Us as part of he gets his campaign have dropped a new commercial and I'd like to share that with you today. The title of the video is Good Times, and the purpose behind the video is to help people see uh, those that may not be connected to a local church, that Jesus wasn't a stranger to this idea of experiencing joy. In fact, when we look at his life, he went to weddings, he shared amazing meals with his friends, he drank with them, he had so much fun and acted so freely uh, around the dinner table that the upright religious folks actually called him a glutton at one point, even a a drunkard. Yet we know this much about Jesus, he was joyful. And, And what does that mean, to be joyful? And I think part of it is, in this day and age, it's really easy to conflate the idea of joy with the idea of happiness. But Jesus hardly ever used the word happiness in his conversations that we have recorded, at least the Aramaic equivalent. And what he did use, though, frequently, was the word that we translate as joy. That word in the original Greek, it's the word kara. And it means a feeling of inner gladness and delight or rejoicing. You see, the the joy that Jesus uh, talked about and lived out isn't dependent on circumstances and it isn't even a reactionary feeling. It's a lasting emotion. It's deep-seated with assurance and it's actually a way of life. Now, when we see this, it gives a different perspective, if you will, to the picture of Jesus eating and drinking with friends and strangers, and it wasn't the food, it wasn't the drink, or the company that brought Jesus joy. He already had that. It's actually the other way around. It was his joy that gave him the freedom to hang out with people that others thought were shady. It was his joy that allowed him to be uninhibited in his pursuit of compassion, and it was his joy to let him throw worry away, uh, to worry about his reputation, and and really what side of life he was living on. He was living life to the full, even as he promises us, right in John 10, 10, And it was the same joy, that deep-seated emotion that works inside out and that allowed him to forgive his captors when he was on the cross. So the purpose of this video is that in the good times and in the bad, Jesus was joyful and he wanted the same for the people around him, people who would listen to him. And it's interesting, during his last meal with his disciples, Jesus shared lots of wisdom. And after a good conversation, he was sure to explain that he was sharing it all so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And then without pause, he continued, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So if you're looking for the secret to joy, that's where we start. He knew what he was doing, and for us, we need to understand is how we love our neighbors. And as we think about that in this season, there's so much that comes to mind. And as we think about that as a local church in this new season of a world that seems continually upside down, we have the hope of the gospel that Jesus is sure about bringing us his joy. We are in week six of our series called Unhindered, where we're looking at how the church grew in looking at specifically the book of Acts. And as you remember, the book of Acts is the second gospel of Luke. As we understand, it really wasn't meant to be separate. It was really meant to be the the next part of Luke's story, as he told the story of Jesus through the gospel of Luke. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, he lays out all that God did in And over these last five weeks, we've explored the book of Acts, and we've only scratched the surface with looking at chapters 1 and 2. And today we're going to lean into a little more further understanding through chapters 3 and 4. And that may seem like a lot to cover, but we need to look at it this way because of how the scriptures are written. And it's the reality that these two chapters, that they were filled with a series of scenes that are connected as one cohesive whole. And so let me just lay it out this way. First, we have a healing, and that's in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, where Peter and John heal a beggar at the temple. And then there's a sermon, Peter's second sermon, from outside the temple, which is Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. And then it all gets shook up because they get arrested and are taken before the Jewish council, and that's Acts chapter 4, 1 through 22. And then they go back to their friends and they pray about what happened, and that's Acts chapter four, verses 23 through 31. And then finally, gives another one of those summaries, sort of what we looked at last week uh, with what the church is all about, where he describes this common life that they shared. And so if you will, what we have here are five common uh, literary themes or genres, if you will, that are used by New Testament writers. First, we have a miracle story, and then we have the sermon, and then we have the conflict, and then we have the prayer, and then we have a summary. The reality is we could spend the next uh, five weeks just looking at these particular verses. There's a lot to explore here, but it also makes sense to look at them as a whole, as one unit, and to study them together, which is what I want to do with us today. Let's start at the beginning, Acts chapter three, verse one. And now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So we have this passage here, it's about the healing of the lame beggar. And its underlying basis, or if you will, the story behind the story, is everything about what's to take place in the next two chapters. And what I mean by that is that, first of all, we have Peter and John are walking into the temple and they see this man begging and they speak to him. In the name of Jesus, the man is healed. And what does the man do? He leaps up and he goes into the temple with them, praising God and everyone around them is blown away. They are astounded. Now, when we look at scripture like this, we want to pay attention to the context of even where it takes place, the setting, if you will. And so the first thing we want to see here is that the text, its location takes place at the temple. Now, I'm sure you know that Jesus was Jewish and his life and ministry, it unfolded in the context of first century Judaism. And the scriptures he taught, what we now call the Old Testament, these were the ancient texts of the Jewish people. And the first followers of Jesus, the movement that we're talking about here in the book of Acts, of how the church grew, was initially made up of Jewish people. And the thing we need to be reminded is that they had remained Jews. Now, one of the things that we keep reminding as we look at this, that their story is our story and that our story began as a new movement of Messianic Judaism, which means that these were faithful Jews who believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that the Jewish prophets in the Old Testament said one day would show up to save his people and that he would restore all of creation. Now, the truth is, Christianity and Judaism did diverge, and it didn't happen until many years later, decades later, and that was a complex and a really long process that was very messy. And what we see here is that they didn't stop going to temple. Because, you see, the temple was the most important and it was the most holy place for the Jewish people. It was the place where God's presence dwelled and where heaven and earth overlapped. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about the, the song, He Loves Us, where it just is pointed out in such a poignant way by John... Mark McMillan about how heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss and to be reminded that it's that messiness of just how when earth and heaven meet up that some amazing things take place. Now, what we want to see here in this particular story that we've just read is that this miraculous moment is where a man is physically healed and where does it take place? It's not inside the temple, but it's at the gate outside. Okay, let's back up a few weeks. Do you you remember what happened at Pentecost? Well, this idea of fire, right, uh, which was the symbol of the presence of God that appeared in the Old Testament, it also appeared at Pentecost. And where did we see it? We saw it resting on Jesus' followers. Now, here at the temple gates, a man is healed by those same followers of Jesus. So when we talk about the presence of God, this idea of where heaven and meets earth, it's no longer confined to the temple. It's something that's actually moving out with the followers of Jesus. Now, Luke, what Luke does here is he's showing us both the power of the Spirit and he's helping us to see that we are the new temple of God. And that's a whole other conversation. You see, this idea of the community of believers as the new temple is the idea that we're fulfilling God's purpose for the Jerusalem temple, which is to be the place where heaven meets earth and where people encounter the healing presence of God. Now, I just want to go back to the He Gets Us ad I started out with, this idea of good times. It's in the context of doing life on life, as we talked about last week, that He Gets Us is just trying to tell the story in a different way about the way Jesus saw life and about the fact it is about relationships. And that's why we want to pay attention to these things, because I really believe in this next season for the church. It's about developing those relationships that are outside of the building. It's not about Sunday morning at 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. if you're here online. Although these are powerful tools, it's also about doing life with people in the community and thinking about how do we do that well. And so the second thing I want to point out in this particular story is what Peter says to us in verse 6. It says, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Well, what's this dude doing? Well, he is begging for alms. And what is alms? Well, it's money, simply put. And Peter says, what? I don't have any of that, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Now, what's interesting here is that Peter doesn't stop and ask the guy about his faith, doesn't ask him about what church he attended or where he's at in his spiritual journey. Peter doesn't do any of that. Peter doesn't say that he himself has gotten the power of Holy Spirit to heal. So what does Peter do? He invokes the name of Jesus, period. Now, it's important for us to understand that in that day and time, particularly in Jewish thought, a person's name expresses the very nature of their being. And so therefore, the power of a person is present and available in the name of that person. It's a very important thing to understand here. So when we sing our great hymns, when we sing our worship to God, and we sing about how Jesus is worthy of his name, as one song goes, what we're saying is that he's worthy of everything, everything that his name represents. And so when Peter says, in the name of Jesus, what he's doing is he's calling on the very essence of Jesus. So the only way a man can be healed is through the essence and the power, and that is the name of Jesus. Okay, let's talk about the sermon. And this is exactly what Peter explains to the crowd in his sermon in verses 11 through 26 with this crowd around him, they are amazed at the sight of this man who they know has been sitting at the gate outside for a while waiting to be healed. And they're looking at Peter and John, and Peter says what? Don't look at us like we did this. This was done by Jesus. And then it says in verse 8, they went into the temple. And so Peter is standing in the temple, and then he just sort of loses it. He just goes off. Now what's interesting is this sermon of Peter's, is very similar to the one that he gave back in chapter 2. Remember that was a homework assignment and if you've not read it yet, I'd still encourage you to go back and take a look at it there in the last part of chapter 2, where at Pentecost, Peter very systematically explains how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, of the things that all these people knew. But then he even goes deeper this time. He's talking about Abraham and Moses, and once again, how Jesus was resurrected and how he is Lord. So what do we have here? Well, in Peter's mind, as he lays it out, he clearly sees the Old Testament as a story that is constantly pointing forward to something that God is going to do through Abraham and his family. And it's something that Moses and Elijah and Isaiah also pointed towards. And something would come that would restore all of creation. And what is that something? Well, we know, as I say many times, have said many times, and particularly as we sit here, as you even look over my shoulder and see the cross, because we, get the, the, we are able to see what history is really all about by looking backwards through the cross, is that that's something that they all were looking forward to is Jesus. And Peter says, Jesus is what this is all about. And Peter also says, and you all killed him. Wow, he really is sort of driving it home, right? So what happens next? Well, this amazing sermon, before he lays it all out and sort of points to the fact that they killed Jesus, then this is where they get in trouble, and this is where the resistance comes from, those around them. So let's continue here in chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, Under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. What's amazing here is Peter's boldness, right? It is remarkable. And I can't help but think that this is the same guy who just a little bit earlier had denied even knowing Jesus. And so it's crazy, his boldness in this moment. And so what does Peter do here? Well, he reiterates that the man was healed by the name of Jesus. And then what Peter does is he quotes Psalm 118, which says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter then adds that there is salvation in no one else, in no other name. What's interesting about this is that this building metaphor represents the essence of the early teachings of this movement we now call Christianity, this thing that we're part of, this movement that is still shaping the world even today And so, what does he say here? He says a stone that was rejected by one set of builders as unworthy or unacceptable is then reclaimed by someone else and not only included in the building, but it's placed in the most critical location as the cornerstone of the foundation. So, here we need to say very clearly that that cornerstone is Jesus and that the Jews are the builders. And what he's talking about here is the fact that the rejection is the rejection of his death and what it meant, and that the cornerstone, if you will, of all that they're talking about here is him being the cornerstone, is his resurrection, his victory over the grave, the fact that the death of death was accomplished in the death of Christ, and that he rose victorious out of the grave on Easter Sunday to bring about the resurrection of all things the restoration of all things to his glory. So we see here very clearly that the stone that the builders rejected, that the Jews rejected what they did by killing Jesus, has become the cornerstone because God raised Jesus from the dead. So let's continue here with Peter in chapter 4. What does he say here in verse 12? And he says, "...and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." So what is the cornerstone of what we believe? Well, Peter says it very simply, is the resurrection of Jesus. And this is where salvation comes from. Now, the word uh, salvation has two meanings in the Greek. One means to save, or the other is to be made whole. And so what do we see here, back to this first part of the story we read today, chapter three, that the beggar is outside the gates and that he was made whole in a literal and a physical way. But we also need to see that he was made spiritually whole and that that's what makes him restored, if you will. And how did it all happen? Well, it happened by the name of Jesus. And as Peter reminds us, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So now we get to the prayer. So what happens here? Well, the Jewish leaders let them go with a slap on the wrist. And so Peter and John went to their friends, and they told them all what had happened. And then they started to pray, beginning here with verse 29 of chapter 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed to the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So what takes place here? What was it that they asked for? Or maybe what is it they didn't ask God to do? They didn't ask God to kill their enemies or to make the persecution stop. No, what did they do? They asked for boldness, and they actually asked for more confidence to keep going. They asked their heavenly father to keep showing up through Holy Spirit and to do amazing things amongst them. Now, how did they do that? Well, again, it was through the name of Jesus. Let's see if we can make this practical. I want you to think about each of the people that are in this story. And I want you to think about who you are in the story. Can, who can you most identify with? Are you the beggar? Uh, do you need healing? Do you need to be made whole? Because the reality is you will only find it in the name of Jesus. Or are you the onlooker? Are you amazed and yet confused by this whole thing? And for you, the answers you're searching for can only be found in Jesus Christ. Or how about are you the religious leader? Do you pretend to have it all figured out? And is it possible that you have rejected the cornerstone? Or are you the disciple? Are you the one who needs to ask God for boldness? Because we need to be reminded that this is not about you, that it's all about Jesus. As we think about where we've been these past five weeks, looking at this amazing second gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, it's just the beginning of the movement. And then the question we we have to wrestle through in this next season is, what do we do with this? Because we need to be reminded that it's not about us, it is all about Jesus. And so, if we think about what we've read and we've heard and been reminded of what happened to those first century Christians as they followed Jesus, I know this story is a couple thousand years old, but I want to remind us that this is our story, that it shows us how we are here today. Now, I'm sure the apostles and those that were in the early church had no idea about this thing called online church and the idea of technology and all those things but all that together it's just basically a method by which we communicate this most amazing story that by the name of jesus life can be given and what it does is it helps us to see what jesus was all about why he came to earth why he why he came to earth why he took on flesh and moved into our neighborhood and bore our sins on the cross and died and why he resurrected from the grave to save us and to restore us to a life that we need to understand in a whole new way because of the power of what Holy Spirit brings us. So as we continue to look at this book of Acts in the weeks ahead, I hope you'll be encouraged. And then to think about in your own story, how do you need to have similar kind of boldness How do you need to pray for Holy Spirit to show up to give you the ability to share the hope of the gospel? And we're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead, but let's take a moment here and let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the power that comes through Holy Spirit, and we are grateful for the boldness that you gave these early disciples, and I pray that each of us can receive the same kind of boldness to offer the hope of Jesus to the world, to release the captives and to... Uh, lift up the brokenhearted so that we may understand a life that you want to offer us in a fresh new way. The promise of John 10:10, 10, 10, a life uh, more full than we can possibly understand. So we pray, Holy Spirit, for your presence in all things. And we pray it through the strong name of Jesus. Amen.